0: What is Bob Dylan? I mean, forget about who Bob Dylan is. That's a mystery that I can't begin to contemplate. But what is Bob Dylan is something that maybe we can get after a little bit. So this is a primer about Bob Dylan, the oceanic artist of our time and our place. If you can't stomach Bob Dylan's music, or you think he's the worst singer of all time, and you feel sure of those things... I'm not interested in trying to change your mind. But if you're curious, if you kind of think you might like Bob Dylan's music but can't really wrap your arms around him because there's just too many songs and albums and he's from a different time, or if you're just trying to understand a little bit what all the fuss might be about, or if you love the music already and want to revisit the Dylan landscape in a little bit more detail, then hopefully you'll find this series of broadcasts somewhat engaging and helpful. Before we get rolling, I'd like to alert you to the website for this series, which can be found at abobdylanprimer.com. Once again, that's abobdylanprimer.com. A-Bob Dylan, P-R-I-M-E-R, dot com. Please check it out, and thank you. I've been listening to and thinking about Bob Dylan's work for most of my life, And the most rewarding thing about Dylan's work is that it continues to bring things into my consciousness, feelings and thoughts, intellectual and spiritual things. I discover something every time I dive into Dylan's music and words. So I decided to think about Bob Dylan in a slightly more organized way from the beginning of his career to the present day and see what I could learn by doing that. I pulled out a stack of books about Dylan Googled around a whole lot about different tangents, read a bunch of old newspapers, and started listening to Dylan's music album by album with repeated listenings of each album before moving on to the next. And thought about all of it, and then thought some more, and then wrote some of it down. It's a combination of biographical facts, historical context, and some personal observations. And that's what you'll hopefully be listening to for the next dozen or so episodes. There is one caveat before we start. Ultimately, what I'm trying to do is completely useless and pointless. The greatness of Bob Dylan has to be experienced firsthand, from his mouth to your ears. Any attempt to summarize or encapsulate his work will miss the mark. I'm still going to go ahead and try, but it's a fool's errand. In this episode, number one in the series, we're going to look at the origin of Dylan's music and myth, starting with his growing up in Minnesota and coming to New York City at the age of 19, and then picking our way through the first record album he released. And now, I think we're all out of a due. So without further ado, this is a Bob Dylan Primer, Episode 1, A Thousand Miles From Home. Bob Dylan was born on May 24, 1941 as Robert, or Bobby Zimmerman, in Duluth, Minnesota, which is a port on Lake Superior and which had about 100,000 people in 1941. Dylan's dad Abe was an office manager at Standard Oil. When Bobby Zimmerman was eight, his dad contracted polio and lost his job, so the family moved about 75 miles north to the much smaller town of Hibbing, Minnesota, where they had relatives and Abe got a job selling appliances in the family store. Hibbing was essentially a mining town at the edge of the Masabi Iron Range, a line of mountains rich with iron ore, the primary ingredient in making steel. In the early 19th century, the Greyhound Bus Company got started in Hibbing by a Swedish immigrant who'd been laid off from the mines. And later, Kevin McHale from the 1980s Boston Celtics was born there. But Hibbing, around 1950, was truly a quintessential small town in the American Midwest. Dylan's childhood was pretty normal. With all the biographies and obsessive research on Dylan, no one has really turned up a traumatic moment or time period or anything too disruptive in Dylan's early life. He was a happy kid, he had friends, went to school, and was an average student. He also led a pretty introspective life. He liked to walk around a lot, which was something you could do easily in the American Midwest in the 1950s. There was a lot of walking around time, quiet time, and Dylan, like most of the kids in Hipping at that time, spent a lot of time just walking around, looking at things. The presidents of Dylan's youth were Harry Truman and Dwight D. Eisenhower, so there wasn't a lot of excitement there. The Zimmermans were Jews, along with about 300 other Jews in Hibbing, and Bobby was bar mitzvahed on May 22, 1954. It's funny what you can find on the internet today. I found out that in October of 1954, two things happened in Hibbing that were probably pretty interesting to the 13-year-old Bob. Cowboy singing star Gene Autry came to town and played a concert, and a new pizza joint called Sammy's opened up. But what made the biggest impact on the teenage Dylan was pop culture, which at that time was dominated by just a few things. You had the Hollywood movies that made it to Hibbing, things like The Young Lions with Marlon Brando and Montgomery Clift, North by Northwest starring Cary Grant, or Love is a Many Splendored Thing starring William Holden and Jennifer Jones. Most families had a record player and a small collection of records, so Dylan heard a lot of songs that way. Probably the biggest thing and the biggest influence on Dylan was the radio, because it supplied a continual stream of all kinds of music. Country, pop, classical, jazz. Almost anything could be found somewhere on the radio dial. And that was really it. There wasn't that much stuff out there. It's not like there were a million videos and photos and songs being posted every single hour of every single day. There wasn't anything close to the inundation of what we call pop culture today. So you could see all the movies that came through town, and you could know all the songs on the radio, and by all accounts Dylan soaked these things up in a way that wouldn't really become apparent until later something was going on something was happening something about the way dylan was wired at the level of his dna was allowing him to absorb things especially music and songs in a way that i think is probably different from most other humans out there after bobby saw elvis presley perform on the ed sullivan show in 1957 he wanted a guitar so around his 16th birthday bobby's mom gave him 20 bucks and he bought a silvertone acoustic and he learned to play the basic chords and he formed a band with a couple of friends they practiced and played a few local dances and stuff like that with bobby usually banging on a piano trying to be jerry lee lewis and they weren't the finest sounding teenage band of all time but according to one of dylan's friends back then a guy named john buckland Dylan didn't give a shit about what anybody thought about the band or his playing. People would holler and boo, but Dylan didn't care and he just kept playing louder and faster. He gave it everything he had, and that was enough for him at the time, which is pretty remarkable for a 16 or 17 year old kid. After graduating from high school in 1959, Dylan enrolled in college at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. He lived in a small, second-story apartment above a drugstore, and he hung out in the bookstores and coffee houses of Dinkytown, the name of the student village just outside the university gates. Dinkytown had a strong political, literary, and folk music scene, and Dylan spent a lot more time absorbing all of that than he did in class. It's during this time that Dylan changed his name from Zimmerman and it's also the time where he fell hard under the spell of the great Woody Guthrie, obsessively reading Guthrie's autobiography and trying to learn all of Woody's songs. Mostly, we can deduce that Dylan must have spent pretty much all of his time practicing guitar and learning old songs. And although Dinkytown was cool, it was too small for Dylan's suddenly enormous ambition. In January of 1961, Dylan dropped out of college and headed to Madison, Wisconsin, which had a burgeoning folk music scene. But after a few weeks there, Dylan realized he needed to get to the epicenter of it all. So he caught a ride to New York City with a couple of friends. The week Dylan arrived in New York, the city was in the middle of the worst cold snap they'd had in more than 20 years. But of course, he was coming from Minnesota and Wisconsin, where it was even colder. So Dylan and his friends arrived in Manhattan and parked somewhere and Dylan walked over to a place called Izzy Young's Folklore Center, which was, in fact, a center of folk music activity at that time. Dylan poked around, and that very night, January 24th, 1961, got up on stage at a place called the Café Wah. It was Hootenanny Night, which was like an open mic deal, and Dylan sang a song. We don't know what he sang, but you can bet it was probably a Woody Guthrie song. So this 19-year-old kid who's just taken to calling himself Bob Dylan gets into town and it's New York City. The town is New York City, at that time the biggest city in the world. The absolute epicenter of everything hip, cutting-edge, intellectual, cultural, and musical in America. And the thing about the biggest city in the world back then was that it was also kind of a collection of small towns in that you walked everywhere and you had your circle. And the folk music circle was a close and dynamic community. Musicians came from all different parts of the world to play in New York City, where there was this tight group of folk musicians who were welcoming, and certainly welcoming to a scruffy 19 year old kid who was like five foot six and weighed about 140 pounds and who didn't know all that much. Bob Dylan at this time has learned maybe a hundred songs on the guitar and he's read a couple of books, and he's got an oddly encyclopedic knowledge of pop music that he's heard growing up, along with blues, country and western, and rock and roll records from the 50s. But that's it. He doesn't know much about folk music. He doesn't know much about anything, really. He gets to town, and he knows no one. But within a couple of days, Dylan had met a few dozen people people who would become and remain important to him over the next few years. He made a lot of connections in those first 24, 48, 72 hours. By the end of that first week, he was implanted in the Greenwich Village folk scene. And also, by the end of that first week, Dylan had already met his idol, Woody Guthrie. At the time, Woody Guthrie was withering away from a disease called Huntington's chorea in a hospital in New Jersey. And somehow Dylan heard that on most Sundays, some friends of Woody's would pick him up from the hospital and take him to their house in East Orange, New Jersey, where Woody would spend the day and people could come and visit with him. So on January 29, 1961, five days after he landed in Manhattan, Dylan caught a ride out to East Orange and played a few songs for Woody. Dylan played a few Woody Guthrie songs for Woody Guthrie. And Woody thought the kid was pretty good and had something, and this meant more than the world to Dylan. Two weeks later, Dylan wrote his first real song, entitled, Song to Woody. From that moment forward, Bob Dylan would never stop writing and performing original songs. So this community of folk musicians and enthusiasts centered at the time in Greenwich Village in New York City took Dylan in and mothered him. The women mothered him and the men put their arms around him and thought, hey, here's this scruffy kid, we got to take care of him. They didn't see him as any kind of threat at first. Little did they know that within a few months he'd be the hottest thing going, have a record contract with the biggest label in the world, and have won the affections of their prettiest and smartest women. New York City in 1961 was where it was at, and folk music had recently become one of the main cultural currencies of the young generation. Now, folk music is a slippery little term, and it means different things to different people. Back then, there were many different strains of traditional music that flowed under the folk music bridge. You had your country blues, your work songs, gospel melodies, murder ballads, yodeling, all sorts of old-timey acoustic music from mostly rural environments. And there were some big stars of the so-called folk music. Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, Odetta, like that. In 1958, three college students from California formed a singing group and called themselves the Kingston Trio. They were clean-cut, crew cutted young men, and they recorded a song called Tom Dooley that became the number one selling record in the whole United States. Tom Dooley was a song about a man who was about to be executed for murdering his sweetheart. But the recording is a pretty syrupy concoction. As saccharine as the record sounds today, the big thing it did, along with similar records, was give young people a taste for what were called topical songs a topical song comments on social or political events, like a protest song. And so, leading into the 1960s, you had these two universes of folk music. On the one hand, the traditional forms sung by artists who were a little rough around the edges. And then you had the Kingston Trio phenomenon, which was all white and extremely commercial for a time. But no matter which camp you came from, Folk music was a big deal in the early 1960s. On April 9th, 1961, there was a riot in Washington Square Park, a few blocks from Izzy Young's Folklore Center. This was one of the first large-scale protests of the 1960s, a decade full of protest, and it was about folk music. You see, every weekend, musicians and so-called beatniks would gather in Washington Square Park and play music. There were hundreds of young people, most carrying guitars, hanging around and making the scene. And the city didn't want these undesirable types hanging around in the sunshine singing folk songs. So they sent a bunch of cops and paddy wagons to the park and all hell broke loose. It's kind of funny now, in hindsight, but people were pretty pissed off about the whole thing back then. Anyway, this very same week is the week that Bob Dylan gets his first paying gig as a musician playing harmonica for blues man John Lee Hooker at a club in the village called Gertie's Folk City. A couple months after that, the music writer for the New York Times heard Dylan sing at Gertie's and wrote a column about him. 20-year-old is bright new face at Gertie's Club ran the headline over the short but highly positive review. Within a few weeks, Dylan signed a five-year recording contract with Columbia Records. So, Bob Dylan, the first record, is released. And people liked it. It got some good reviews, but that was it. It was still 1962, and youth culture, the rise of the super youth, hadn't happened yet. Kids were kids, and they didn't have much power back then. Don't forget, it was almost two full years before the Beatles showed up on Ed Sullivan. The world was a very different place then. So the album went on sale, and if you were very, very hip in your town, or your parents were socialists, or if you had an older brother or sister that was super cool and independent and into folk music, you might have heard about this record and you might have gone down to your local department store and bought it. And if you were a 20 year old girl in college, you might have put the record on and dreamily studied the somewhat cute boy on the cover and thought, wow, this is a big strapping, authentic sounding folk singer. He's he's lived a rough life. But the record didn't change the world. That first record was a pebble. It was a pebble dropped into the pond of the Greenwich Village folk scene, and it started rippling outwards, but it didn't create any kind of monstrous waves. The tsunami was coming later, but not much later. In the next episode of A Bob Dylan Primer, we'll look at the impact made by Dylan's second and third albums as he transforms from a slightly offbeat but very charming kid to what they called back then the voice of a generation. Music for this broadcast was provided by Max Ferguson, sound designed by John Zalewski. My name is Michael Hacker. Thank you for listening, and if you'd like to hear some of the music referenced, Please check out the public playlist I created on Spotify under the name A. Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit our website at abobdylanprimer.com to lend your support and find supporting content about Bob Dylan. Again, that's abobdylanprimer.com. And thank you very much.